I think a few of us have lived long enough to see two monarchs ascend the UK throne. Um, I was only a twinkle in my mother's eye in 1953, uh, the coronation of Elizabeth II. So I was interested in yesterday's events. I'm sure some of you guys were as well. Now, I started reading about the details of the ceremony earlier this week, including an article describing what will and what won't be there. As expected, there are crowns, regalia, anointing oil. But what fascinates me are the people. Present are representatives from Commonwealth countries. Among those awkwardly present are the Chinese vice president, um, anti-monarchy protesters nearby, um, and Prince Harry without his plus one or two, uh, Duchess and their son. <laughs> it's events like this that reveals much about a nation and its king, strengths and weaknesses, and even unity and tensions within. And I can't help but see some parallels between yesterday's event and today's passage. It's like I got a gift of an illustration this week. David's time of waiting to be king is over, so it seems. But there are still haters and protesters. He's destined for the throne, but it's not a smooth path at all. That's the nation is still divided when it comes to his rule. So let's see what happened. Now, since 2 Samuel 2 is a long chapter, I'll read it in two parts, verses 1 to 11 first, and then verses 12 to 32. So first, 2 Samuel 2, 1 to 11. And if you're using your pew Bible, you'll find it in page 212. And if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to uh, feel free to take one from the pew as a gift from us to you. So, Second Samuel two, one to eleven. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, "Shall I go up to any of the tribes in uh, any of the cities of Judah?" And the Lord said to him. Go up, David said. Where shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanai. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, 
was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. This is a good spot to stop and discuss some geographical and biographical details. First, the events of 2 Samuel 2 have two main geographical centers, Hebron and Mahanaim. The two places share some similarities and origins. Before the conquest of the Promised Land, they were among the 48 cities given to the Levites, with Hebron as one of the six cities of refuge. Hebron was situated in the mountains of Judah, Mahanaim was about 70 miles away by one count on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Now, two rulers exercised political power at these cities. David ruled over Judah from Hebron, Ishbosheth over other tribes from Mahanaim. Their military commanders leave and return to them. Note how 2 Samuel 2 begins and ends with key figures at these two cities. David, his wives, and Joab at Hebron, and at Mahanaim, Ishbosheth, the false king, and Abner, the true puppet master. The extent of Ishbosheth's rule is outlined in verse 9. His authority extends from Mahanaim to the surrounding Gilead region. Then you can cross the Jordan and draw a line from north to south, from Asher, Jezreel, through Jezreel, Ephraim, and Benjamin. Finally, you can just Draw a big circle to include all of Israel except Judah. Turning to biographical matters, we must reacquaint ourselves with some of these names. David needs no introduction. But concerning his marriages, we saw back in 1 Samuel 25 that he took for himself two wives while on the run, one from Jezreel and another from Carmel. That was after Saul gave um, especially the second one, after Saul gave Michal his first wife to another man. There are more women to discuss later, as David's lust and family problems lead to all sorts of disasters. More immediately relevant to today's text are the three sons of Zeruiah. Zeruiah is David's sister, so these three are David's nephews. They were with David through the tough times. We saw Abishai back in 1 Samuel 26. He was willing to have blood on his hands to kill Saul in his sleep, but David did not allow that. We'll learn a lot more about Joab and Asahel in the rest of 2 Samuel 2 and beyond. On the other side, as David's enemies are Abner and Ishbosheth, there are a lot of questions surrounding these two. We know for sure Abner's related to Saul and he became his army commander. He's essentially Saul's bodyguard. But in many chapters in the Bible, he seems to be a non-factor. Like, how did he survive the battle against the Philistines at Gilboa? Why didn't he die with Saul, his sons, his armor bearer, and all his men? Perhaps as one pastor writes, Abner's model goes like this. When the going gets tough, it's time for me to get going the other way. Maybe he ran and said, this whole loyal to the end approach is not for me. 
We also have questions about Ishbosheth, also known as Eshbael, in First Chronicles eight and nine. Where did this guy come from? We know about Saul's three sons who died with their father, Jonathan, Abinadab, also known as Jeshui, and Malkishua. We don't know why this guy wasn't there at Gilboa or how did he survive um, with his brothers. But here's what we do know. His age of 40 years suggests he was the youngest born around or soon after Saul began his reign. He never dreamt of becoming king, but... Now he's ruling from Mahanaim, thanks to Abner. And that sets the stage for the confrontation at Gibeon. But before we move on to that ugly scene, let's stop to appreciate the beauty of David's leadership in verses 1 to 11. Three times within those verses, you'll find in a cluster of words, the name David, the title king, the preposition over, and the phrase, the house of Judah. That's in verse 4a. That is the first sentence of verse 4, verse 7, and verse 11. With those markers in place, I say that David's exemplary in his authority because, one, he seeks guidance from the Lord. He seeks guidance from the Lord. That's in verses 1 through 4a. Two, he rewards the loyalty of his subjects. He rewards the loyalty of his subjects, that's in verse 4b to 7. And three, he deals patiently with opposition. He deals patiently with opposition, that's in verses 8 to 11. First, David seeks guidance from the Lord. All that led up to chapter 2, verse 1, point to David returning to the land of Judah after Saul's death. That's his tribal region, and within it is his hometown, Bethlehem. He roamed and hid in that territory when Saul hunted him. Even during his time in Philistia, he's been sending spoils of war secretly to the elders of Judah. It doesn't take a political genius to figure out he should go there. But just as David brought tough decisions before God, he'll bring what seems obvious and natural before God too. For many years, he's developed this godly habit of prayerful inquiring. inquiring. This is a great example of James 4, 13 to 16. David's not the type to say rashly today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. He's more inclined to say, if the Lord wills, We shall live and do this or that. So David waits and receives answer that he can indeed go to one of the cities of Judah. He inquires further to pinpoint the exact location is Hebron. Are you at a major life transition like David? If so, seek guidance from the Lord before enrolling to a college or a university. Switching jobs or changing careers, moving on from one church to another. Submit yourself to God first. Followers of God become great leaders of men. And we see more great leadership in verses 4b to 7. This is David's second exemplary act. He rewards the loyalty of his subjects. 
of the men of Judah report the valor of Jabesh Gilead. If you recall, the Philistines, upon defeating Israel at Mount Gilboa, came to strip the slain and found Saul's body. They took his head and armor to their temples, while the body they pinned to the wall of a city named Bethshan. But about 14 miles away was Jabesh Gilead. Their valiant men took a dangerous night expedition to collect the bodies of Saul and his sons and give them a proper burial. Now, why did they do this? And here's what happened. Years ago, Ammonites invaded them, and they were forced to submit to a harsh covenant. Since the Benjaminites had close relationship with the beleaguered city, Saul, from that tribe of Benjamin, quickly learned of their plight. So in one of his first acts as king, he gathered up Israel, went to defend the city, and drove away the oppressors. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 11. The man of Javish Gilead did not forget Saul's kindness. Hence this heroic act of giving him a proper burial. So David, in his first act as king, recognizes their loyalty. Now take a look at what he says to them. It shows the depths of his faith. He, as king, does promise himself to repay them for their kindness, but that promise comes later in the second half of verse 6. He front loads his message with contents regarding the Lord. God is first, and he's the ultimate source, kindness and truth, the fount of every blessing. David puts himself second as a channel of that blessing. Recognizing God like this, David has the power to empower. Let your hands be strengthened, he says to the men of Javish Gilead. He asks them to continue as they were, courageous and brave. They'll need it as David's rival tribes try to sway them to join their side. But he reminds them that he's the anointed king out of the house of Judah. And eventually all will recognize this truth. But that's going to take some time. And that leads to David's third exemplary act, which doesn't sound like an act, but it is. He deals patiently with opposition. The main reason for all the waiting and Patience is quite simple. If the war was against the Ammonites or the Philistines, there's no need to pause or hesitate. Knowing David's skill at combat, he could end their opposition closer to seven days and six hours than seven years and six months. But consider again all the names in verses 8 and 9. They're not merely enemies. Abner's a cousin of Saul, Ishbosheth's the son of Saul. Somewhere in their territory is Saul's daughter, Michal, David's first wife. The whole matter is complicated. You see, while Jonathan was still alive, he made David promise to show kindness to his family even after he dies. David's bound by oath, and he's not about to break it. Add to that, David's called to be the king of Israel, not just the house of Judah. He's destined to rule over all of Jacob's tribes. 
That includes the names, the lands and divisions of verse 9. You see how complex it can be dealing with opposition. Church and family leaders must be discerning and wise. Are we looking at wheat or tear? Are we dealing with wolves in sheep's clothing or are we dealing with sheep straying in the mountains? While answering those questions, it doesn't hurt to deal patiently. So David waited and waited. He's been waiting nearly half his life to be crowned king over Israel. What's another seven and a half years? Especially since he's back home, recognized by his own tribe. Aside from his foolish polygamy, David mostly displays the qualities of a good king here. He seeks guidance from the Lord. He rewards the kind or loyalty of his subjects. He deals patiently with opposition. So now the question remains, will the people eventually submit to his good rule? You'll see, let's see what happens in the rest of 2 Samuel 2. So verses 12 to 32, I'll read it now. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by number, twelve from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve from the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. Therefore that place was called the field of sharp swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind them and said, Are you Asahel? He answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and lay hold on one of, those, one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back, and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was, as, it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, stood still. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amma, which is before Gia by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, 
Unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all night, all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithran, and they came to Mahanai. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, they were missing of David's servants, 19 men and Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. Then they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which, is, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. I observe three major scenes here in the second passage of 2 Samuel 2. I say there are one showdown and two chase downs. The showdown took place in Gibeon, specifically in the place called the Field of Sharp Swords. That's in verses 12 to 17. After the showdown, there's a chase down in verses 18 to 23. It says in verse 19 that Asahel, the fastest of the three brothers of Zeruiah, pursued Abner. They talked somewhere between Gibeon and the hill of Amma. But unlike what we see in nature between the predator and the prey, unlike the myths of Troy, Achilles, and Hector, the one who chases down is the one who is put down. Many stopped dead in their tracks, precisely and literally where Asahel stopped dead in his tracks. Joab and Abishai, Asahel's brothers, though not nearly as fast, also pursue Abner in verse 24. Then we see what happens in the rest of the chapter. They face each other on the hills near Gia. The location is not known with certainty, but a safe guess is in the territory of Benjamin. The confrontation here ends with an uneasy truce. But the damage is irreversible and great. Only if all of Israel would unite and submit to God's will. His will to establish David as king over them. There will be no strife, conflict, civil war, sons buried by their parents. It's a disaster when we ourselves don't order our own lives under the authority of the Lord's anointed. So just as we learned about the three positive aspects of God's rule through his king, I say there are three negative consequences of man's rebellion against Christ. First, there are violent rivalries, verses 12 to 17. Violent rivalries, 12 to 17. Secondly, there are prideful ambitions, verses 18 to 23. Ambitious, and then there are costly defeats, verses 24 to 32. There are costly defeats, 24 to 32. So first there are violent rivalries. The Montagues and the Capulets and Romeo and Juliet, they got nothing on the house of David versus the house of Saul. Right? Now as Abner and his men advance, they meet at Gibeon, an appropriate halfway point, 
Gibeon was 26 miles from Mahanaim and 26 miles from Hebron. But the servants of Ishbosheth will have a sort of a home field advantage as they're within the bounds of Benjaminite territory. The two sides meet at the pool of Gibeon and a bloodbath ensues. Now, I wish Joab would have pleaded with Abner and his men to stand down and stop the rebellion. I wish Abner led his men to repent and submit to David, but neither happened. Read again verse 14. Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. That word compete leaves room for speculation. It's a verb that has its roots in laughter, like the name of Isaac. It's also found in Judges 16, 25, and 27, in the same verbal stem, translated as perform. Samson, at this point, blinded, humiliated, a slave of the Philistines, comes out to the merry crowds to perform for them. Of course, that would lead to his final performance as he became a tragic hero. But here in 2 Samuel 2, I can't see anything heroic about this 12-on-12 competition. I see no wisdom in it. I just have questions for Joab and Abner. Is this like boxing, wrestling, mixed martial arts? What's the reward for winning? What's the shame of losing? Is this supposed to be like what happened between David and Goliath? At least the purpose and outcome of that battle was clear. Um, Goliath himself said it. Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Here there's no mention of time limits, rules, objectives, and referees. So soon these elite athletes became unrestricted killers. They were so evenly matched that the 12 on 12 ended with everyone dead. There go the best men of war on both sides. Blood is spilled, and then it spills over to a very fierce battle. The field of sharp swords was a pointless tragedy. It's another one of those violent rivalries that plague God's people. Moving away from that scene, we see another negative consequence of man's rebellion against Christ, prideful ambitions. Just as rivalries can turn violent when they go unchecked, ambitions can become prideful without humility before God. Asahel is the epitome of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's sad that Asahel makes his one and only appearance in the spotlight here in 2 Samuel 2. He was a man full of potential. His name's listed as among the mighty warriors of David and one of his captains. But here, by all indications, he has broken rank. He went rogue in some ways. He used his God-given natural gifts to pursue Abner by himself. He's fast, like Hussein Bolt a few years ago, or Eric Little about 100 years ago. 
But when Asahel runs, I don't get the sense that he feels God's pleasure. Unlike little, Asahel didn't know when to stop running. Just as I have questions for Joab, I have questions for Asahel. Like, how do you, a young buck, hope to defeat a seasoned veteran soldier? Do you have a plan of attack? Or are you like those dogs who chase cars and finally catch them? You may be swift as a gazelle, like the Gadites. Do you have the face of lions like them? Well, there's no deterring, no turning back, no turning aside for Asahel. He wanted to distinguish himself from others, probably over his brothers. Despite Abner's repeated warnings, despite chances to settle for lesser, valuable, less valuable spoils of war, the youngest son of Zeruiah seeks the highest prize. Abner didn't want to kill the brother of the enemy commander, Abner's a politician. He knew that if things don't work out, he needs to be in good graces with Joab. But he has no choice. It appears Asahel ran full speed towards Abner, and the blunt end of his spear caught a soft spot through the, through the armor and skin. Probably inevitable that Asahel would lose this fight, but he literally gave himself a running start. Prideful ambitions led to Asahel's end. Now, despite the violent rivalries and prideful ambitions of sinful men, God sovereignly worked through these to accomplish his purposes. The battle that followed the competition led to major losses for Abner and Ishbosheth. Perhaps the dogged pursuit of Asahel kept Abner distracted enough so that he couldn't organize and command his troops well. That might explain the high number of casualties on his side, and that leads us to the next point. Ultimately, there are costly defeats as a consequence of man's rebellion against Christ. Unlike Asahel, his brothers, Joab and Abishai, do not attempt to face Abner alone. They pursued at a slower pace, and presumably with a contingent of troops. They arrive at the hill of Amma. On another hill nearby was Abner and his unit. It's been a long day, and the sun was setting. Abner's thinking survive, live to fight another day. So just as he got the competition started earlier in the day, he suggests the cessation of the battle later in the day. He asked three rhetorical questions in verse 26 to dissuade Joab from continuing the pursuit. Joab's response in verse 27, I think the English Standard Version provides a good translation of the original. It says in that translation, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. In other words, if Abner had not proposed a truce, Joab's men would have kept going and going and going all night until they finished their job. David's men were a brave and determined bunch. But this was enough. Joab blew his trumpet and the fighting stopped. He 
He ended the pursuit, accounted for his men, buried his brother in Bethlehem, and returned to Hebron by dawn. Abner also fled all night back to his base in Mahanaim after losing 360 men, way more than the 20 lost on David's side. Abner has suffered a costly defeat because he did not submit to God's will. So we see what happens when God's king rules well, but God's people are unruly. The application, I want to remind you that David's reign over Israel is analogous to the reign of Jesus. The easiest and the most natural analogy is to the battles that take place at Christ's second coming and Satan's final rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom. But the point is the same. The greatest coalitions of sinful men and fallen angels cannot overcome the Lord and his anointed. Where do you stand in relation to Jesus? Are you on his side? Know that human resistance against God's rule is futile. It's best to admit our faults and surrender. We've broken the Lord's commands. We are rebels. We've lusted, coveted, lied, and stolen. We sadistically enjoy violent rivalries. We pursue vain, prideful ambitions. We do not realize fully the cost of our sin, God's wrath, eternally apart from him in hell. But there is hope. You can ask conditions of peace even today. This is the time when the Lord may still be found. You can enjoy forgiveness and spiritual blessings from Jesus because he lived the perfect life. Then he gave up that life as a sacrifice on our behalf. He was forsaken, cursed on the cross for us. He paid the penalty of sins that we should pay. He rose again from the grave, victorious over death, overcoming the world. Now we can be on his side now and forever. Surrender. Put down your arms, submit to God, give up your self-righteousness and resistance against his authority. Obey Christ the King and come to him in humility By doing so, you too can overcome the world if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You cannot earn or deserve this victory. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 